seated. Let's pray together. Our God, we come again uh, to your word because we need to listen to you. We need to hear what you say. We need to think your thoughts after you, to understand who you are, to understand what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus, to understand what it means to be his people, your, your church, to understand what it means to be the Lord's people, what it means to be members of your kingdom and to live for your glory. Oh Lord, would you speak to us in your word? Will you open our ears that we would hear clearly the truth? Would you open our hearts and soften them that we would receive the truth? Give us eyes to see Christ and give us hearts that long to live for you as you have made us alive for yourself. We hear us as we pray in and through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Would you please be seated? Well, certainly uh, wish you a happy new year. Uh, we will uh, return to uh, our study of the book of Romans next week, but uh, thought it would be uh, appropriate and, uh, and wise even for us this first Sunday of uh, the new year to give our attention to uh, a text that um, I think has some very specific challenges and uh, uh, specific vision for us, even warnings for us as we enter into a new year as, uh, as God's people. And so uh, you can see the text this morning is from James chapter 4, verses 13 uh, through 17. Uh, I think that uh, as you look at a new year, um, you may have uh, perspective on a new year that's different than uh, your neighbor. Um, I think over the years, just kind of see how people look at New Year's differently. For some, this, this is how I thought about it this last week since it snowed. Um, you know, my children wake up on last Sunday morning. Of course, it was snowing when they went to bed Saturday night, but they didn't know what to expect Sunday morning. And uh, I'm sort of, my wife says I'm pessimistic. I say I'm realistic. Um, I was preparing them for just sort of a dusting, you know, I didn't want to get their hopes up. And of course, they wake up Sunday morning and their eyes are, you know, this big and they, they can't, it's, it's, it's opportunity, right? It's, it's adventure, it's excitement. Well, some people look at a new year that way. And, uh, and probably I'm sure some of you, if you have young children, look at a fresh snow with that sort of excitement. Some of you maybe look at that fresh snow with a sense of, it's going to be a long day, Right? Uh, it's going to be a long, cold day. I'm going to have to get out in there in that snow with my kids. And Well, some of you may look at a new year that way. There may be a sense of, of worry, a sense of weariness. But I think no matter how, may, how you may look at a new year, there's a tendency that's common to us all. It's actually universal. And that's a tendency to live as if we, and, and not God, are the sovereign rulers of the world. To live as if we are in control of our lives. Now, you may not say, in fact, I suspect you don't say to yourself, I am the sovereign ruler of the world. But just because you don't say that doesn't mean you don't live as if you, you are, right? Just, as, just even though you confess, believer, the lordship of Jesus Christ over your life, you don't always live like that, do you? In fact, what James holds before us is, is this delusion of self-sovereignty to which we're all prone. And he wants us to examine, uh, to examine ourselves in, in the light of this. 
And he wants us to do so precisely because of, of what it means to be a Christian. He's writing to believers who are under all kinds of various trials, as you are. And James wants us to understand that even as we've got this baptism fresh in our, in our minds, that to be a Christian, to be baptized into the Lord Jesus Christ, is to be, as we often say, engaged to be the Lord's. And I wonder how, how often many of you think about that. I suspect if you're like, like me and perhaps like many believers in Christ, you don't think about that nearly enough. What it means that you belong to the Lord, that you're engaged to be His. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 11, writes to the church and says something very interesting to them, very powerful. He tells them, uh, I betrothed you to one husband so that you would be a pure virgin for Christ. Isn't that powerful imagery? Paul thinks about his ministry, says, uh, you Corinthians, you believers in Jesus Christ, you're engaged to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? To live a pure life for him. Not to run around with other men, so to speak. Not to live your own way, to live for yourself, but to live for the one who's your husband, who is your bridegroom. Now, that's what it means for you this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that you are engaged to be the Lord's, to live for him, to to see the, the vision of his kingdom, his glorious reign over heaven and earth, which is increasing until the day when he returns to make it full and complete, to see that vision and to say, that is my hope, that is my life, that is the world of which I'm a part And by God's grace, that is where I want to live my life. That is what I want to live for. And if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and belong to him, then I I know that's your desire. And yet at the same time, we're, we're schizophrenic, aren't we, as believers? We say that and yet functionally what we live for. We live for so many things other than the kingdom of God and the glory of God. And so James knows this, understands this about us. And because of our tendency to do this, because of our tendency to live not for God's kingdom but for our own, not under his sovereignty but as if we are the sovereigns, he gives us in these verses that I'm going to read for you six ways in which this danger of self-sovereignty presents itself. So I'm going to read this text and consider that briefly with you this morning. Let's give our attention to God's word. Come now you who say... Today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do And fails to do it for him, it is sin. All right, the delusion of self-sovereignty. What's the first thing that James tells us? Here it is. The first danger, the first way in which living as if you're in charge of your life is a delusion is this. And you see it in verse 13, that it puts you at the center of the universe. What does James say? He Right here at the beginning of verse 13, he, he says, You who say today or tomorrow will go into such and such a place and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. James is saying, you're, you're, hang on a minute. You're, you're making all these plans as if 
as if they're foolproof, as if certainly you will succeed, as if certainly your plan will be realized and you set yourself to the pursuit of your goals as if, as if you're in control, as if you're guiding your, your own life. You even see it in the language there, we will go, we will do this, we will make a profit. There's no consideration of their own frailty, their own weakness, the possibility of their failure. And so James is concerned about them because they're putting themselves functionally at the center of the universe. Let me put it this way. Functionally, they're living godless lives. Understand this distinction. We all have official theology and we all have functional theology, right? There's what we confess and believe, and I'm not suggesting that you don't really believe it uh, conceptually, but we don't live according to the truth that we believe, And that's exactly what James is addressing. You confess that God is sovereign, that he's the Lord, but functionally you trot out the steps of your life as if he's not there, as if he's not really in the details, as if you're not living under his hand. So maybe James was pointing to, it's possible, to unbelievers out there, outside the church who live this way, but I think it's more likely that he's speaking to people in the church whose official theology includes, as yours and mine Uh, include the sovereignty of God over all things in this world. But functionally, their lives were were godless. They weren't taking his plan into account as they made their own. And James wants them to see that. He wants us to remember this is God's world. It's not your world. It's not my world. It's not your plan that's being carried out from beginning to end. It's God's plan that he has kindly and graciously and powerfully involved you in. But he wants you to remember that it's God's world. Because he wants you to remember your place in this world. And and he wants you to remember your place because he knows, as I hope we know about ourselves, that we all too easily put ourselves in God's place. And so James warns us about self-sovereignty because it puts us at the center of the universe. You know, maybe, maybe in your life it's become all about your plans your hopes, your dreams, your expectations, your fears, your doubts, your failures. But in some way or other, maybe slowly and subtly, you've become the center of the world. You've become the main actor in your story when it's actually God's story. And so God is warning us through James about this danger of living as if functionally God is not in control over the events of your life. It's deism. God's out there somewhere. He'll be there for me when I need him. But right now, I've got things to do. So self-sovereignty puts me at the center of the... By the way, there was a recent study done that showed that's the dominant religion uh, in America. Uh, Moralistic, therapeutic deism was the phrase. God wants me to be a good person, try my hardest, not do bad things, try to do good things. He wants me to be happy. He's there when I need him, but uh, not, not so intricately involved in the details of my life. And so James is cautioning us against this, and we'd be very naive, even as perhaps mature believers in Christ, to think that we're immune from this. And so to ask God to search our hearts. Well, then he goes on, and even in the second half of verse 13, and says that self-sovereignty is also dangerous, not, because, not only because it puts you at the center of your world, but because it's actually driven by love for the world. You see what he says uh, he says, uh, you know, we'll, we'll go into such and such a town, we'll trade and spend a year there and, and work our plan and what, we'll make a profit. 
Now look, understand, James is not condemning planning, he's not condemning commerce, he's not condemning wealth or even the pursuit of wealth, but what he's cautioning the church about is love of the world, love of the world. This is what James is seeing in in these people's lives. They're driven by uh, the pursuit of worldly possessions. Again, it's not wrong to pursue wealth, to pursue industry, to, to seek to be profitable at what you do, but it is most definitely wrong. It is most definitely wrong to have your heart ruled by those things. And it is most definitely an imminent threat to us, is it not, in this world? To live as if what matters is the things that we can experience and enjoy in this life? Without a doubt, I think this is one of the huge weakening temptations for the modern church. Materialism, the bigger and better mentality. And so I want to ask you this question to ask us to consider honestly before God and before each other this morning. If this has been an area of deception for us in this past year, what's the centerpiece of your life? Is it possible that things of this world have seduced you and taken a place in your heart that they do not deserve and that they ought not occupy? You find yourself on a constant quest for bigger, better, nicer things. You find yourself looking at whatever it might be, someone else's job, house, car, spouse, body, possessions, whatever it might be, and thinking, oh, if only I could have that. And living in that way, questing for the next big thing, the next better thing. Oh, James is warning us that that's a form of self-sovereignty. Because rather than trusting God to care for you according to his plan, you're always questing for your own plan. And you become seduced by the love of the world. And so the question, if I can put it this way, is really this. Are we this this year, are we feasting on God's love for us as our Father in heaven? Or have we become so satisfied at the world's table that we're really not hungry for the love of the Father? that we don't hunger and thirst after him because we're so satisfied with the good gifts that he's given to us that they, but they're not leading us back to the giver, but we're just satisfied in the gifts themselves. That's one of the dangers James is saying of self-sovereignty. It's, it's love for the world. And he goes on in verse 14 and says, more than that, it, it, it loses the mystery of life. It ignores the, the fact that you don't know what, the, what your life holds. You see how he puts it here in verse 14? You do not know what tomorrow will bring. <laughs> Think about how mysterious your life is. I, who of you, I, I bet there's nobody in this room, in fact, I guarantee there's no one in this room, that could have predicted five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, exactly what your life would be today. It's a great mystery in life, isn't there? God brings things into your life that you weren't expecting, great hardships, great joys, but there's great mystery in life. And James is saying, stop stop for a minute and think about the way you're living. Aren't you living as if You know what tomorrow brings, but you you don't even know what tomorrow brings, much less years and years and years from now. I think there are two tests that that can be helpful for us, two questions we can ask ourselves and challenge you to ask yourselves. The first is this, how do I react when my plans for life are disrupted? That happens a lot, doesn't it? (laughs) Your plan for life is disrupted in some way. How do you react? 
And, and the second question is, how, how much do you pray? I don't know how else to put it. We, we don't like to talk about quantity of things sometimes, but how much do you pray? Because if you're not praying much, what does that show about you? Doesn't it show? I don't think you can make a case that, to the contrary, that your dependence is not on God but on yourself. And that's what James is pointing out here. You, you don't know what the, what, the, what the world holds for you, what your life holds for you even tomorrow. Proverbs 19 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. See, the most important thing as we come into a new year is not your plans, but God's plan. So how do you go about thinking about your life, making plans? Well, you, you make plans that are consistent with Scripture, and, and you trust God to be at work in your life, but ultimately you, you have to hold these things loosely so that if He takes them from you, you're not reacting in anger or fear or despair to Him, but you know that He's at work through His plan to bless you and care for you as His people. So you keep your heart open to His will. You trust His Word. You walk humbly with the Lord. That's what James is after with his friends that he's writing to here. The way you're not, as you do this, you're not depending on your own limited understanding, your own finite plans, but you're depending upon God's wisdom, the power and grace of your Heavenly Father to care for you. And here's kind of the question that confronts me on a regular basis, and, and I suspect it does you as well. And the question is this, am I willing to give up my pseudo-control in order to rest in God's fatherly care for me? Are you asking yourself that question? In some way or other, are you asking yourself that question regularly? Am I willing to relinquish my grip on the details of my life and on my future and on my hopes and ambitions? Am I willing to turn, turn loose my pseudo-control, because that's all it is, by the way, in order to rest in the knowledge that whatever my God ordains is right, that I have in God a Father who loves me, who sovereignly rules the world for the good of His people, who cares for me, yes, who's even willing to wound and bruise me in order to make me whole in Jesus Christ. And to rest, finally, in that, to rest in His care, Self-sovereignty loses sight of the mystery of life, but trusting in the Lord acknowledges that, that our plans are one thing, but the steps that, that fall out in our lives are according to the Lord's will. James goes on in verse 14 and says that self-sovereignty also forgets eternity. I, I think this is the most central piece of the whole passage, actually. Self-sovereignty forgets eternity. Look what James says. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You've completely lost perspective, he says, because you have no recognition of eternity. Friends, uh, I think it's safe to say that Western culture has no perspective of eternity. There's a look at the past. There's a look at the future in some way, but there's no perspective of eternity. And where there's no place for eternity, there's no hope. There's no reason for patience and endurance and self-denial. There's no all-encompassing story that makes sense of everything that's going on. And so without, without hope of eternity, 
there's nothing but I, I just need to do the best I can with what's right in front of me and make the, make the best sense of it that I think I can. But Christians, Christians aren't, aren't to think that way, are we? we? We stood here this morning and we, with the Apostles' Creed, said that, that we're in the midst of history, that God is at work, that he's moving things to a destination. We said that we believe that Jesus Christ was uh, crucified, that he died, that he descended into hell, that he rose from the grave, that he ascended into heaven where he now sits at God's right hand and that he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Friends, that is history. We're involved in that. We're caught up in what God is doing. He's moving things to an appointed end. History is not static or cyclical. It's, It's what theologians call teleological. It's moving toward the end. And that means that Christians are to be people who live intentionally with their eyes ahead on the future. In light of the coming of Jesus Christ and his glory, that he's coming again, that he's coming to establish his kingdom, that he's coming to judge the wicked, that he's coming to redeem his people, to bring us to be with him where he is. Now, I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty sure that you're just like me and you forget that every single day that you forget every single day that you are a citizen of heaven and that there the Lord Jesus Christ reigns for you in his full glory and he knows you by name, knows your situation, is at work in your life and at just the right time, God is coming for you to redeem you and make you whole. And yet, how do we live? We live as if, we live as if our life is the long thing when actually eternity is the long thing. James says, oh, friends, as you go about your life, as you think about this year, the next year, and so on and so forth, remember that your life is over like that. It's but a mist, and yet eternity is millions upon millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of years. And so now is the opportunity, by God's grace, to live for his kingdom here in this life and then in the life to come. But self-sovereignty forgets eternity. Have you forgotten eternity this morning? Have you gotten so mesmerized by just the day-to-day grind of your life that your eyes need to be picked back up again? Self-sovereignty also fails to live submissively. That's what James is getting at here in verse 15. Instead, he says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. Now, here's the point, of course. James is not saying the solution is just to tack on a little prefix. Uh, If the Lord wills, We'll do this, that. You could say that and still be in the delusion of self-sovereignty. He's painting for us a picture of two different ways of life. There's one way of life that's submissive to the hand of God. There's another way of life that's not. And that's what James is commending to us. Let's put it this way. Every week when we pray together, your kingdom come, your will be done. Are you praying that way about every circumstance in your life? Those of you who are married, are you praying that way? God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in my marriage as it is in heaven. Are you praying that about your job? God, may your kingdom come, may your will be done in my job, in my relationships there, even as it is in heaven. God, I I don't know what's going on with my health, with my body Your kingdom come, your will be done in my body, in my physical existence as it is in heaven. 
to be submissive to the will of God, to pray that His will will come, that His will will be done in your life, whatever that means for you, however costly that is for you, or is it the case that you're a little nervous about that? Because you have some plans for your life, you have some things you'd like to see happen, and you're not sure that the Lord is going to do what you'd like Him to do. But the submission of heart that James is after here is really the core of godliness. It's where godliness can flourish and grow because it's where I begin to delight, to submit to my Father. Oh, God, I know that you love me. This is hard. This hurts. Remember, James is writing to people who are struggling. But, God, I know that you love me. I know that you're caring for me. I know that you're sovereign and good, and I rest in your will. Help me to do so. Help me to shake off this self-sovereignty that fails to live submissively to you. And then finally, and very quickly, because I think this really sums up the whole thing, James says that self-sovereignty is, is fundamentally putting yourself where only God belongs. That's what he gets at in the last two verses. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. That's why James calls it evil. Can you really think of anything that's more evil, more sinful than in the face of the sovereign grace and care of the Heavenly Father to live as if you rule yourself? It's the great folly that we are prone to. If you're a believer, the Bible says that's characteristic of your whole life, that you're carrying on as if you're uh, if you're an unbeliever, rather, if you're carrying on your life as if you're in charge. You know that God's there. You know that you ought to worship Him. You know that you owe Him er- your life and your, your adoration, your obedience. But you're living for yourself. Believers are not immune from this. We've been raised to life, but we still are prone to put ourselves in the position that only God should occupy. We lose sight of We lose sight of his grace. We lose sight of his will. But friends, we've been bought with a price, not to be our own, but to be his and to live for him. Now, I wonder this morning, as you think about yourself, as we look at ourselves in the mirror that that God puts in front of us, if we can see ways in which our lives have been touched by these dangers that James points to. Have you forgotten who you are? Have you forgotten who God is? Maybe put yourself in his place in some ways? Have you been lured away by love of the world so that your heart's been drawn away from from God to materialism, to things that you can lay hold of in this life? Have you lost sight of eternity? Have you prayed for God's kingdom but really worked for your own? Where do you go from here? Where do we go from here? James, just a few verses earlier, says that God opposes the proud. And some of you, perhaps God has been opposing you because he loves you. Because you've been living boastfully and proudly and self-reliantly and he's been opposing you to finally get you to open up your hands and say, okay, God, enough of my way. I want you to have your way. Maybe that's happening in your marriage. Maybe that's happening in some other area of your life. That God is opposing you in love because of your pride. But James says, but he gives grace to the humble. God meets the one who's lowly. God meets the one who's humble and and contrite. 
Can you see these things in your life? Don't, don't ignore or excuse or tolerate it any longer. But confess it to God for what it is. Ask him to change you. Don't you think that God wants to make you like Christ? Don't you think that's his plan for his people? Of course it is. And as you do this, you can know that as great as your sin is, God's grace is greater. That's what James says earlier. He gives more grace. More than what? More than your sin. More than your self-sovereignty. More than your pride. More than anything you can imagine. His grace exceeds anything you can imagine. That whatever you have done, whatever I have done against him, what he has done for us in Christ is far greater. Far greater. Because the one who lived and died and was raised for us is who? Is the sovereign God himself. And so it's, it's the call to, to draw near to him and to know that even, even when you've been guilty of self-sovereignty, of living as if you're in charge, you know what God's been doing in Christ all along for you, believer? Graciously, kindly ruling all things for your good. And that ought to, if you're a, a believer in Christ, at the same time break your heart and, and embolden you to return to him and serve him. That all the while, as you're scurrying around, living anxiously, and as if the world depended on you, God has been kindly, gently, patiently ruling all things for your good and for his glory. Even to the point where this morning he says to, to, to you as his children, don't you remember who I am? Don't you remember that I made you, that I've redeemed you? Don't you remember what I've done for you? That my own son, who is the sovereign, subjected himself to humiliation to raise you up. So you don't have to try to climb up anymore. Because God has raised you up, and you can simply rest in him. So as you make your plans, as we plan, and we do want to plan, don't we? We want to live intentionally. But we do so with the recognition that Christ belongs to the Father, and all things are his. What does that mean if you belong to Christ? Everything is yours. And so finally you're at rest to work for the glory of God. Let's pray that he'll enable us to do that. God, you have promised that as we humble ourselves before you, you'll lift us up, you'll never turn us away, you'll forgive and cleanse us, make us new, give us grace to live for your glory in this life and in the life to come. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would give us grace to do these things. How we thank you that what you have done in Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection is infinitely, eternally greater than anything we could ever do and have done. And that we're at liberty now to rest in him and work for his glory and for the, for the glory of his great kingdom. Lord, bring these things to pass, we ask, through Christ the Savior. Amen.